It's good to see you today. Good to be gathered together with God's people. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be jumping uh, through a few places, but just want to start by reading a text in uh, the book of Hebrews, a familiar text, Hebrews chapter 4. And I want you to know that it's actually in the Bible. It's not something that we make up as pastors, and um, not that we ever make up verses of Scripture. Um, but, um, well, this is why you have a Bible, so you can ensure that we don't make up verses of Scripture. Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 4 and verse 12, a, a familiar chapter of verse 12, and it, uh, it says the same thing in a different way that uh, Psalm 139 uh, verse 23 uh, that Andrew just read says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's something that if you underline, you might want to underline, at least in relation to where we're heading for the next little while. The Word of God is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We started a little bit of a journey, uh, a review journey, I guess in some ways, uh, a journey of the heart. And um, it's a, it can be a discerning, uh, disconcerting journey sometimes for some of us. Um, as we get into the heart and as we dig deep, we're reminded that it's a pretty treacherous landscape. That there are things that are in our hearts that um, we would rather keep hidden or that we would uh, rather not have to think about or deal about. And as we shine the Word of God into those, um, onto that path as we journey, it can sometimes be a little bit shocking to us. We know that God desires truth in our innermost being, but we don't always find it there. And we don't always see it there, and it's not something that we have always applied to our heart. And I think what complicates these inner journeys as we have the Bible uh, expose what's going on in us is that it's a solo journey. It's a hike that you take by yourself. You don't go with anybody else. Our, our verbal conversations we have all the time with other people, and we, can, we, we have a measure of self-control. We have things that protect it in ways that we guard our tone and what we say. But when it comes to our heart, it almost has free reign. And the things that we say to ourselves and the things that are exposed at what we say to ourselves can be really disconcerting. And I, I know this as I've chatted with some of you over the years about what goes on in your heart, and I know what goes on in my heart, that when the Word of God begins to get applied down there, it can sometimes be a little bit scary. And one of the things that happens or can happen is that as we see what's inside of us, we begin to doubt maybe God's love for us. We begin to think, well, I, maybe God's going to let me go. We begin, begin to think, maybe, maybe I'm too far gone, or maybe there's too much stuff going on inside of me. Maybe God wasn't really just aware of everything. And now that I am aware that he is aware of what's going on in there. Uh, maybe there will be a parting of the way. We can lose sight of the fact, or you can lose sight of the fact, as I can, that Jesus died in your place to suffer the penalty for your sin, that every, even the secret sins of your heart and soul and mind, all of them he died for. And when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were instantly and forever forgiven. All the guilt and all the shame of every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit is gone. Do you know that? 
Do you believe that? It's gone. This is why doctrine, though, matters. When we get to these practical things, this, this reality of what we think about in truth is, is necessary for us to speak to ourselves so we don't lose our way. And there's two things that will keep coming up in various ways, and I just want to remind us of them now just so that we have them in the back of our head. But it's to keep in mind, and they're both theological words, justification and sanctification. The wonder of justification is speaks to my standing before God. I am forever um, free before God. There is no condemnation to those that are in God. We have peace with God because we have been justified with God. It's a legal term that speaks about our sins being completely dealt with forever, all of them forgiven. And we need to remind ourselves of that. I do that on a fairly regular basis. I told you I've got a little personal catechism that I have created for myself, and I change it from time to time. But one of the things that I say to myself, which is speaking to justification, is, Paul, how does God feel about you? Well, he's delighted with you because he's delighted with Jesus, his son, and you are united with Jesus by faith. You are justified. Paul, he is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Paul, remember what God says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Remember, Paul, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is speaking truth to myself when I think that God is going to let me go. The other is sanctification. And sanctification speaks to this transformation that continues to take place in us where God transforms us into the likeness and image of his son, Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Or we can think of it in these terms. We need to remember both our eternal union with God and our, experience, our experiential communion with God. Two different things. It's, if I can say it this way, it's kind of like marriage. When we get married, we enter into a covenant with our spouse. And that covenant is in place until we die. It's a secure covenant. It is a covenant that we make before God. But experientially, our communion with our spouse can go up and down throughout the time of our marriage. Sometimes we're happy with one another. Sometimes we're mad with one another. Sometimes we sin. Sometimes we offend. We've got to talk things through. We've got to make things right. And those two things are realities all the time in our marriage. Well, that's true in our relationship with God as well. Our eternal union with God speaks to our standing in relation to God who made us and created us. And it's true of everyone who has ever been born again, uh, uh, whether you are a son or a daughter of God. If you've been made new, if you've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, then your life is eternally bound up forever with God because of Christ. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. No one and nothing can snatch you out of the hand of God. You are eternally united with God. Praise the Lord for that. But there's our experiential communion with God, though. And that's what we feel sort of every day. That's the, the, what we feel when we experience forgiveness. It's what we sense sometimes of the joy of the Lord in our heart. It's the intimacy that we experience with God as we walk with him in a day in and day out uh, uh, basis. 
It's, it's the, how we feel. It's kind of like how you feel towards your spouse and how you relate to them throughout any given day. And as I say, that goes up and down sometimes. And so it's important that we distinguish even there between the two words union and communion. Union points to what is true of our relationship with God because of his grace. We are united, united forever with God because of his grace. But communion refers to what I feel sometimes in that relationship. Sometimes I feel close to God. Sometimes I feel distant from God. Sometimes I feel his love. Sometimes I don't feel his love. My union with God never changes. My communion with him does. My union with God is unchanged by my sin. My communion with God certainly suffers by my sin. Whereas God is now and always will be my father, my experience of that truth and reality go up and down. My status at God, as God's child is, remains unchanged. But my capacity to enjoy and feel the glory of being a child of God can be undermined by unrepentant sin. And so it, it's helpful as we go through even these weeks that talk about sanctification and we're made aware that we're not where we want to be and that there's this journey and that the Bible exposes stuff that we need to repent of. It's helpful to be, be reminded that as we experience that, we are secure in God's love. We are secure in the union that Christ has purchased for us by his blood. So we need to keep those things in mind. I want to quickly address three questions. What assumptions uh, validate the pursuit of sanctification? What realities um, speak to uh, uh, the need to pursue the sanctification of our self-talk? And then why do we turn to the book of Deuteronomy uh, sort of this morning as our first one? So first is simply this. What assumptions, and there's a lot of them, but I just picked on two. What assumptions validate this pursuit or this emphasis that we are undertaking as a people of God together that make it important for us to realize we have to deal with what's inside. The first is simply there is a God. We've talked a lot about this as a church. God is real and that changes everything. But it's a necessary assumption because what you believe about God or even if you, be if you believe there is a God, then there is reason then to believe that that God knows you and that you matter to him. It's important that we understand that the God of the Bible, as we read from Psalm 139, is acquainted with us. He knows our insides. And there is a God, and he's a God that uh, sees into our hearts. And so it's important as we pursue this. It's just not something we can do or do, do or not do. We have to do it in light of the fact that God is real. The second thing, though, is that God has revealed himself to us. Do you know that, right? Do you know that God has revealed himself to you? There is not a single person on this earth, anywhere in any corner of this earth, that hasn't experienced the revelation of God. God has revealed himself through a number of different means. One, he's revealed himself through creation. The Bible tells us the, 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 the heavens declare the glory of God. The Bible tells us that the invisible attributes of God are seen in creation. And so anyone with eyes to see or with hands to feel or with feet to walk in is part of this world in which God has made. And we wonder, where did this world come from? 
Why is this, why is there something and nothing? Secondly, God has revealed himself to us in his word. That book that you hold in your hands, that iPhone that, that has the text of scripture, that, that, that you can read the word of God, that is a gift of God to us. He hasn't remained silent. God tells us about himself. God tells us about ourselves. God tells us the, the, about the gap that exists between us and him. God tells us how, we, how that gap has been brought together and how we can enter back into a relationship with him. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. When we talk about Christmas, what is cr Christmas? But it's the revelation of God to us. It's God taking on flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And so in the person of Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself fully and perfectly. And God has also revealed himself in your hearts. We are made in the image of God. That's why we wonder about what happens when we die. That's why all of, all of humanity has this, this inkling or this wondering, why is there, wh what happens when I die? Well, because the person, a writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity in the heart of all of us. Why? Because we're made in his image and God is eternal. And therefore we realize that we are eternal. Or we concur with Augustine that our hearts are restless. We all feel this restlessness because we're disconnected, because we don't know where we're going, because we can't make sense of everything. But Augustine says, yes, our hearts are restless until, until they find their rest in God. And so God has revealed himself to us and he wants us into a relationship with him. So those two things alone, the, the, the reality of God and the revelation of God, drive me to a conclusion that then it matters. What God says about me matters. Secondly, what, what realities convince me that I need to give attention to my self-talk? There's many, but I'm only going to point out one. And that is what the scripture says about our hearts. What the scripture says about our heart. The Bible tells us again and again that our hearts are sinful and they're not trustworthy. In and of themselves, by themselves, they are not safe guides to our thinking and our deciding. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We got to wrestle with that and we got to come to that. And I, I think sometimes as you begin to be honest with your self-talk and the conversations that you have and the things that you think, you realize just how desperately wicked it is sometimes. And then Jeremiah asked, and who can understand it? In other words, there's a seductive subtlety about the heart that will mislead us if we allow it to. Jesus said very clearly, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And it's that which defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. To us, sometimes the heart is the seat of emotion. It's how I feel about somebody. I love you with all of my heart. It may be true, but when the Bible uses the word heart, there's this much fuller picture that is assumed when it uses that word heart again and again and again. It's, it, in the Bible, the heart is the basis, it's the core of who we are, it's the, it's the, 
the, the source of our thinking, our thoughts, our mind, our will. It's the source of internal knowledge. It's the place of thinking and reasoning within us. It's sort of the center of our being. That's why the writer in Proverbs says, above all else, guard your hearts. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your hearts. Why? Because they are the wellspring of life. As you are in your heart, so you will experience life. And so one of the realities that makes it um, imperative that we examine what goes on in our hearts and we consider it and we listen to what we say to ourselves, one of the things that makes it imperative for us to do that is because our hearts are deceptive. And they're not sources of trustworthy thoughts. The second is insights simply from those that observe these things in the human realm. Those who talk about uh, and write about self-talk, they, they would write things like this. Self-talk tends to be emotionally charged. Do you find that about the things that you say to yourself? You're much more emotional on the inside than you often are on the outside, but often those emotions leak out. Self-talk is fueled by a vivid imagination. You can talk yourself into a world of hurt quickly because you just explode something that has happened in your circumstances around you and your imagination just goes all over the place. In self-talk, we tend to overgeneralize. We tend to forget the little details. We tend to forget um, significant differences. We tend to forget things that happened in the past that would temper the way that we are talking to ourselves. Self-talk is often irrational and illogical. We just go places in our internal conversation that we would never go in external conversations. Sometimes we just simply need to say, Paul, give your head a shake, really? Self-talk usually leads to a catastrophizing, catastrophization of things. We use language like everyone, all the time, always. We, we, we just explode it in our hearts and make it something that's way out of proportion to what is actually going on in the circumstances. And so it's those two realities, and there's more, but just the observation of Scripture of our heart and the observation of men and women of our self-talk. Uh, tell me, Paul, I need to think about what I say to myself and my inner conversations and bring them in line with Scripture. So the third question, why the book of Deuteronomy? Why do we want to dive into Deuteronomy for a couple minutes or what rains this morning? I find Deuteronomy fascinating because there Moses is talking to the people just about a, a whole variety of day-to-day -day circumstances. And that as God, uh, through Moses, addresses those circumstances, God addresses their Self-talk very, very clearly. And so I think it's helpful for us to learn from the realities that they faced in um, way back then when Moses was leading the people into the promised land to realize that we're no different. The circumstances may be different, but how we deal with those circumstances internally are not. 
And what we learn from Deuteronomy is that God hears what you say in your heart. Sometimes we think, well, no, it's private. Nobody else hears. Nobody else knows. That might be true of the sense of your spouse or your children or your boss or somebody that you're arguing with. They don't know what you're saying as you walk away from them. But Deuteronomy reminds us that God knows very, very clearly, exactly and precisely the things that you are saying in your heart. Secondly, it matters to God. It's not a, a matter of indifference to God. It's not like, oh, I don't really care what you say. Um, I just know that I know, but yeah, I don't really care where you go. No, it very clearly tells us, as Moses leads us through this, that these things matter to God. And then what we find is various ways in which God, through Moses, helps the people correct that conversation and that dialogue. And so we'll start with the first one, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Uh, might as well just keep your Bible open in Deuteronomy, but uh, Deuteronomy 9, verse 4 is an introduction to the things that we're going to find um, uh, throughout the book of Deuteronomy. If I was in a Bible study, I'd say, who, who will read that one for us? But we're not, you might not be able to hear. So Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, do not say in your heart. That's pretty clear, right? Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. This is the, the people of Israel are about to enter into the land of Canaan. They're about to inherit houses they haven't built. They're about to inhabit cities that they haven't built. They're about to get vineyards that they haven't planted. And so as they're getting ready to enter into this land, God says, I, I, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out of you. Now this is the self-talk. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. That matters, right? God knows what's going on. And he says, no, don't talk like that to yourself. And we do that. We do this, though, don't we, as parents? We, we assume what's, uh, uh, you know, what's going on in the external conversation sometimes with our kids. Don't talk to me like that, we would say to one of our, our kids. Or out of an action, we, we presume because of the action how they're thinking. And so, so we're, we would say to them, that's no way to think. Because we know that their verbal conversation or their act describes actually what's going on in their heart. That's no way to think. Change your attitude. I'm going to send you to bed without supper. <laughs> Have you ever said to one of your kids, as you see them coming around the corner with something in their hand, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Come home from Sunday church and you're in your suit. It's a hot day and pull up in the driveway and hop out of your car and your kids greet you with three or four water balloons each. I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. <laughs> so we can make assumptions about what's going on. So what he says here is very clearly our self-talk can be sinful. Don't say to yourself, don't say that. The Lord has brought me here to take possession of the land because of my righteousness. You'd never say that out loud, would you? You, you go buy a, a new house or a new car. You look at it and you say to your spouse, wow. I'm a really good person. That's why we got this house. But you might think it, right? You might say to yourself, well, I've worked really hard. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really a better person than so-and-so. I, I serve a lot. You know, I, I do a lot of volunteer work. And after all, I've got a good education. And, um, yeah, that's, that, I've got a pretty nice house. I'm a, I've worked hard for that. We could substitute that for a variety of examples in our life as we look at stuff around us. 
And we would do well in those circumstances to remember this phrase, don't say to yourself. Check what you say. Check how you are interpreting those circumstances. The corrective to all that, if you follow through in, uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, is, is really verse 4 begins by simply saying, it's not because of your righteousness, but it's because of the wickedness of these nations. So have a little bit of humility. Realize it's not because you are as good as you think, but it's because they're worse than you think. Be humble, and the world doesn't revolve around you. I think our self-talk can be inherently self-centered. But it's like God says, no, the world, everything is not about you, Paul. Secondly, in verse 5, he goes on and he says that really what God says to them is that, no, I'm giving you this land in fulfillment to a promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the word of God. Why has this happened? What, why, is this, why have I accomplished this? What's going on here? Well, God told me this would happen. God promised that this would be the case. And then in verses 6 to 24, which we won't read um, at all, or all of them, but in uh, verse 6, he simply says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Be honest with yourself. You know, this is why the word of God is so important to, to transform how we think and how we view ourselves. And so our day-to-day -day living is full of opportunities to play this game of comparative righteousness. It's just an example, again, that God knows our self-talk. God wants us to correct our self-talk, and God tells us how to do that. Secondly, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here's another example of day-to-day self-talk. The Israelites are going to be encountering nations that are far stronger than them, more numerous than them, and even the Anayakim, which are massive, giant-like people. And a natural response to that would be fear. And so in verse 17 of chapter 7, God through Moses says to them, if you say in your heart, they're self-talking again, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? In other words, you're having a conversation with yourself. God's brought me here. He's told me I'm going to, no, not a chance. They're bigger than I. They're stronger than I. There's more of them than me. There's not a chance. And he says, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than them, how can I dispossess them? Then notice what God says again. Don't be afraid of them, but you shall remember. One of the greatest antidotes to fear in our life is memory. The things God has already done for us, the things God has said for us. And so he says, remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Remember that. Remember the plagues. Remember the deliverance and walking through the Red Sea. Remember the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand of God, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples whom you are afraid of. You shall not be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is in the midst, a great and awesome God. See how he mingles truth in, how he says, no, don't think like that. It's the wrong way to think. It's not true. It's not the way God has acted in your life in the past. It's not the way God is going to act in your life in the future. 
Remember what I have done. Remember that I am with you. Remember that I will never leave you or forsake you. Remember my promises. Again, it's another application of the day-to-day things that we face in our life. I, I think we probably face circumstances, if not every day, every week in which we can be fearful. And we can talk ourselves into a world of worry and anxiety if we neglect to think about what God has done for us, who God is, where God is, what he promises to do for us. And even in the case of the people of Israel, did they not remember, as he says in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession. Do you not know that as a child of God? You are God's treasured possession. God has chosen you. Do you think he's going to let you just be destroyed and snuffed out? It's against this backdrop of the character of God and the goodness of God that our fear is to be dispelled by our self-talk. Fear fear is a powerful emotion. And fear is a terribly convincing beast, if we allow it to be. You go back in the book of um, Moses, back to Genesis, and you find there that um, Isaac is about to settle in the land of Gerir, or he has settled in the land of Gerir. And he's made a pact with his wife that uh, she's to say, that she's his sister, not his wife. And it says, after some time, the men of the place asked him about his wife. And he said, well, she's my sister. And then this is what he says, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca. That was his self-talk. Well, no, if I, if I tell them that she's my wife, they're going to kill me. But he's completely forgot that God has led him to the land of Israel, that God has led him to the land of Canaan, that God has promised to protect him and preserve him, that God has promised to give him children that number more than the sands of the ocean and the stars of the sky. He's thrown all of that out because his fear has dominated his self-talk. So again, when you face circumstances tomorrow, maybe today or this week. And inside you start listening to fear and you start cultivating that fear. Remember what God has done for you in saving you. Remember what God has promised to do for you. Remember that God has promised never to leave you or forsake you. Remember that God has promised to meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Remember that God has promised you that You ought to seek him first in his kingdom and everything else will be given to you. Don't give in to fear. Turn ahead uh, just uh, one chapter to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 8. 11 to 17. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied. 
This almost explains every single one of us in North America. We have got material possessions and wealth beyond the imagination of probably 80% of the world in which we live. And so here are the people of Israel. They're about to get all this stuff that they didn't work for, that um, has just fallen into their laps, so to speak. And then he says, when it's all multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground when there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock and fed you in the wilderness with matters that manna that your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you and test you and do good to you in the end. So remember the journey that you took when you started at 16 years old and all the things God helped you with as you went into your 20s and in your 30s, your education, the, the jobs that you got, the promotions that you got, the amazing providences of God that got you to where you are. Remember all of that. Beware when you get there, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me my wealth. That's self-talk again we look around at our circumstances and we interpret them as though we are the center of the world. And we forget about God's goodness. We forget about God's graciousness. We forget about God's protection. We forget about the fact that we brought nothing into the world. And yet God in his mercy and grace has overflowed us with blessings. You know, in times of prosperity... We're prone to forget where we came from and how we got to where we are. And Israelites faced this test and they failed it. Or they, the, 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 the concern was that they fail it in their heart, in their self-talk. How is your heart when it comes to interpreting the blessings, blessings of God? What kinds of things do you tell yourself as you survey your bank account or your closet or your whatever it might be? A lifted up heart is the disposition that causes people to take credit for all their success and to think that their wealth or power or position is the result of their own efforts. Look out when your self-talk is given to pride. Pride is an ugly beast. It's a really ugly beast and it's a, it's a dangerous beast. There's so many examples of pride and some of the, the most brutal examples of self-talk in the Bible have to do with pride. Uh, for instance, some of you maybe remember the story of Haman in the book of Esther. Uh, Haman just had a hate on for Mordecai. Um, he was coming in in the morning to uh, kill, uh, ask for permission to kill Mordecai. That same night that he's plotting how to kill Mordecai, God has woken up the king and reminded him of what Mordecai had done. And uh, the king asks his servants, well, what has been done for Mordecai? And the servant says, well, nothing, O king. So the king's mulling this over at the exact time that Haman comes in to ask if he can kill Mordecai. And before he gets a word out of his mouth, the king says to Haman, so Haman, what do you think should be done to the person that God wants to honor greatly, or I want to honor greatly. Haman said to himself, that's exactly what it says in the text. Haman said to himself, whom would the king want to honor more than me? There's the self-centered nature of self-talk again. Who would the king want to honor more than me? Or you have Nebuchadnezzar, who as he looked out over his kingdom, said to himself, is this not great Babylon, which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence? for the glory of my majesty. And 
poof. <laughs> He's crawling around like an animal for a period of seven seasons. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Oh God, humble us in our hearts. Deuteronomy 15, 9 to 10. We're close, we're almost there. Here's another life issue. How do we respond to those around us? Start at verse 7. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within, which, uh, within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. There's the first clue that we're running into trouble. Or shut your hand against your brother. But you shall be open-handed towards him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And what might an unworthy thought in our heart be in that kind of situation? Well, in that particular situation, it's the context is the practice of the year of Jubilee, uh, sabbatical year. And at those sabbatical years, the clock were turned back as it was to zero again. So if you had um, uh, borrowed money and at the end of seven years you had some left to pay back, the debt was erased. And if you had lent money to somebody, at the end of seven years, if they hadn't paid it all back, you were out that money that you lent them. And so what's going on here is those that have money are looking at the poor and they're calculating, okay, well, if I lend them this and the year of Jubilee is here, then they're I'm going to be out of money because they're never going to pay me back in time. And so their unworthy thought is not a chance. I've worked hard for my money. I'm not going to do that. The seventh year, the year of the release is near, so I'm not going to lend you anything. And you give your brother the evil eye. That's what an unworthy thought is. You say, he hasn't worked as hard as me. He hasn't tilled his fields the way I've tilled my fields. He's slept in till seven o'clock, and I've been up at six o'clock every day. I've been healthy. He's been sick. Why did he have so many kids? An unworthy thought. As CSB puts it, be careful that there isn't a wicked thought in your heart. Fascinating how our minds work, isn't it? What goes on in, in our heart, what we calculate inside of us that nobody ever sees or nobody ever knows, but it determines what we will do on the outside. Those unevil, those unworthy thoughts determine that I'm not going to lend to the poor, even though I should lend to the poor. You see, loved ones, we are, in our day-to-day -day life, we are faced with using the resources that God has entrusted with us to meet the needs of people all around us. How do we think about those needs that we see? Well, no, I've worked pretty hard for this. Or, you know, that bonus, I've been waiting for that bonus for a long time, or... Thank the Lord for those checks that the government sent out during COVID. <laughs> Simply remember what God has done for you spiritually. We were impoverished. 
desperate, doomed to an eternity separated from God. And he who is rich became poor for your sakes so that you might become rich. So have a word with yourself in your day-to-day living. This is why, again, Hebrews uh, chapter 4.12 is so necessary. It's so necessary. We read the Word of God. We absorb the Word of God. We memorize the Word of God. We meditate on the Word of God because it's able to judge the inside of us, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And God is concerned about that. And it matters to God. He hears what we say. And he wants us to be, he wants holiness on the inside. He desires truth on our insides. And he guides us in how we might work that out in our lives. And so this week, you might not have to deal with fear or pride or self-righteousness or generosity to a brother and sister in Christ. But I can assure you, that you and I are going to face circumstances where our conscience will say to us, don't say that to yourself. Or our conscience will say, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and mind and you say. Our conscience will say, beware lest you say in your heart. May God help us to just submit our internal life to the same scrutiny and the level of scrutiny that we, ex- we give our external life to. Our external life, we seem to be so concerned with what others think. In our internal life, may we be concerned with what God thinks. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, find this whole person transformation into the likeness of Christ. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Your love is so great and it's so thorough that you want to even help us in the area of our thought lives and those conversations that we have with ourselves. Father, the circumstances of our day-to-day living present so many opportunities for conversation that is either pleasing to you or displeasing to you. Oh, Father, may we listen to your word. May we listen to your spirit. May we remind ourselves that that's no way to think. That's no way to talk to ourselves. And may we actively say, Father, would you transform me from the inside out? Would you purify my thoughts and my inner conversations? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.